Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof the Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Happy New Year to you folks. What an absolute dumpster fire 2022 was. 2021 wasn't great either. Let's hope that 2023 brings us some relief from the existential pain we're all going through. Um, I hope you uh, had a good break, however you um, have celebrated it, and that you are ready for a nice leisurely look back at some of our favourite stories from the past year. Uh, We're going to hear about one of the most unethical stories in history, uh, the Robbers Cave experiment. Carl Zimmer will talk to us about what it's like to be alive. Um, But first, we're going to hear a story that we covered earlier in uh, 2022 about animals that can detect disasters. Absolutely fascinating piece. Now, even today, with the most advanced technology available, no one can reliably predict when an earthquake will occur. But according to some, animals can. In this unusual ability to detect natural disasters that some might call an animal instinct, is it just an urban myth or are there actual scientific proofs to support the theory? Well, Martin Vikelsky is a professor at the University of Constance and director at Max Planck Institute of Animal Behaviour. He joins me now. Uh, Welcome to the programme, Martin. So where does the idea um, come from that animals might be better predictors of of something like this happening? Well, the idea is really old. Uh, Probably 2,000 years ago, the Greek already wrote that down and used it in their cities. Um, Then it was clear through the Middle Ages in Japan, in China, in other places. Um, Alexander von Humboldt uh, realized that when he was in Venezuela 200 years ago, so the idea is old, uh, but the data are far and few between. What sort of animal movements are we talking about uh, here, Martin? Because obviously um, horses run around all the time. It doesn't mean there's going to be an earthquake. Are there specific species that are good predictors or are there certain unusual movements by unusual animals that make you question whether or not this is a foreboding of some sort? Well, we have actually gone to... Um, the people that should know, farmers and uh, native villagers, and they tell you, oh, this animal and this species in our area is very sensitive and and might tell you. Like like what? um, For example, um, I mean, elephants in Banda Aceh, or in that case, um, sheep and cows and dogs in Italy. Um, And if you study the right animals, individual animals that the farmers tell you, then there there might be a chance to understand if they predict an earthquake. When you say individual animals, you don't mean like a single pig or a single elephant, or do you? Well, the farmers say on the farm we worked in Italy um, before one of the major earthquakes a few years ago, um, they had some 30 cows or so, but they only said, well, you know, six of them or eight of them are really good. So only use those and then <laughs> use the, the two dogs. And uh, they had some uh, rabbit and a, a few more chicken. But individuals, they know, they all, it's a very small farm. They all know their individuals and not every animal is as good as another one. Okay, so now I'm really intrigued. How did they know that these animals, these individual dogs, cows or elephants, were good at predicting earthquakes and and that it wasn't just a fluke that they they just behaved unusually? Well, you could actually still see that because we were down there after the major earthquake and these animals, these individuals were still totally sweaty. Uh, Others weren't. So they were apparently much more stressed than the others. 
even after the earthquake, um, not only before. And uh, these farmers just just really know the animals. But I think the key is that we were actually able to measure like a real time series throughout these earthquakes. And it, it, it still has lots of problems, but it seemed that we could actually predict what's, what's happening. I mean, the animals apparently predicted what's happening. So tell me about your research, how you went about it and what you found. Well, um, it's always difficult, obviously, to, <laughs> to go to an area where an earthquake is happening or will happen. Uh, we know that there are some areas like... Uh, the Andrea, St. Andreas Fault, where eventually an earthquake will happen, but you never know, is it in 10 years, in 20 years, in 100 years? It's, a, it's an expensive project to hang out there for 20 years waiting for an earthquake. Exactly. So that's why we eventually said, okay, we wait for an earthquake and then go there and see if the animals can predict the aftershocks, which are, uh, aftershocks are predictable. Some are very strong, some are less strong, but it's clear that some of them are super strong. So there was an earthquake in Italy. Uh, we drove down the next day. We found a place, a nice farm. They said, oh, yeah, we can do that. They told us which animals to use. And then we thought, oh, let's wait for the aftershock. But there was no aftershock coming. And the interesting thing was that the earthquake series started again, started new with a 6.6 earthquake. So we basically then had animals before the earthquake during the earthquake and afterwards, and then during a control period. And we have a complete time series of their behavior during these times. So when you have um, an animal that you want to monitor to see if it can predict the onset of an earthquake, how do you rig up this animal to to, to measure that? What sort of technology or measurements um, are required? In principle, it's what everybody has in their cell phones, um, in their smartphones. It's uh, measuring acceleration. So it's the movement of the body in space. And in that case, for the cows, I mean, there it's a traditional farm. The cows are um, sort of fixed in the stable um, so that they can be milked and and so on. So they get a little necklace. um, Those tags only weigh 20 grams and they record forever uh, continuously. And the same for the sheep and the dogs and the chicken and so on. They all get the same kind of devices that measure the nervousness in a way, the movement in space of a body of this animal. So what did you find? Well, it was actually really interesting that um, if you, we, we did two, two correlations, uh, one just time series, the time series of an earthquake and time series, so the, the sequence um, of the animal behavior. And there were some interesting correlations, almost like a stock market. You use one stock to predict another stock. So that's that's possible to some extent, but noisy. But if you go by what the farmers do, that they say, well, you know, if, if our animals go totally crazy, if there's mayhem on the farm, and not just for five minutes, but for an hour, then we think that something is really, really happening. Something is, is sort of coming our way. And that's exactly what the animals did. So what what is that, uh, compared to baseline, what does that look like, that sort of craziness that you're talking about? Well, you can imagine if you would stand on the farm, all the animals would be active. There would be calling and movement and rattling of chains and just mayhem. Uh, you know, that, that may be similar to, say, in the morning when the farmer feeds the entire um, farm. But at that time, 
um, the, the, the activity level would be even higher. So, so it's something that you have to compare to a regular uh, pattern, a daily movement pattern of animals on this farm. But if, say, at night, three o'clock in the morning, these animals rattle their chains and they don't stop for an hour or during the feeding times, they are even more active. They are trying to break away. They are all, they're just going totally crazy for an hour, for a really long period of time. Then you know something is coming. Right. And so um, you were very lucky to have this earthquake happen as you were measuring. Were there other instances where uh, they were acutely sensitive to maybe less severe earthquakes? Or is there evidence to suggest that these animals might might be able to predict other types of natural disasters, for example, hurricanes and that sort of thing? Well, there are some indications around the world. There are more and more studies towards that. So that's really interesting. But what we found is that um, seven out of the eight major earthquakes, uh, magnitude above four, were predicted by the animals. Now, the interesting aspect was that there were different times ahead of before an earthquake that they were getting active. Right. What we realized is that this time was related to the distance of this epicenter from the farm. So if the, the epicenter was right below the farm, we had one that was basically right below the farm. The animals were active about 12, 14 hours before this earthquake. If wow. It, Sorry. Half a day before the, the earthquake. That is... That is very, I, I mean, I thought you were going to say 30 minutes. No, quite a, while, quite a while before. Now, if the earthquake was about 30 or 25 kilometers away, it was only about two hours before or an hour before. And that's interesting because that means, for one, you can't use this knowledge of animals for more than maybe 30 kilometers. The, the signs don't reach the animals. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's becoming noisy if the, if the earthquake would be too far away. This is fascinating. First, I want to know how this works. What is the mechanism, do you think, for the animals to understand what's going on underneath the ground? We don't know. And that's a big problem, obviously. But, you know, it's the same if you have a a dog that is a, a blood dog that finds a blood trail. You don't know how they do it. You just know they do it. And you use the readout from that dog, from that sort of black box. You know it's working. And that's, in a way, what we are doing now. But obviously, we want, we want to understand the mechanism. So what we think is happening is that when the, the plates are sort of almost moving before an earthquake, when there, there's enormous pressure on the rocks, we know that the, the ions from the rocks, the the minerals are actually going into the air. So there's ionized air, and that air may actually travel around, I mean, may diffuse. And if you are an animal with, you know, fully haired or fully feathered, all your feathers stand up, all your hair stands up. And if your neighbor also says, oh, something's wrong, all my hair is standing up and everybody's hair is standing up, maybe that's, that's the mechanism. We don't know for sure. Right. So, so, so really the only reliable um, tool to predict uh, an earthquake so far we're, we're thinking could possibly be animals uh, in, in, who are sensitive to this upcoming change in the environment, but we don't know what the mechanism might be for that. That is really, really interesting. Well, you, you always need the instruments that are out there now to really 
know, you know, what, what's the earth doing in general below you and what are the, the, the overall expectations? But then maybe animals can be an additional source of information that maybe they are sometimes wrong, but it seems that, uh, from our data that they are very often right and that the system could give you additional information that could be essential. Okay, so we know that this happens with all sorts of animals, not, not every individual, but some individuals in advance of an earthquake. You, you could have elephants, you could have dogs, sheep, pigs, snakes even. Um, do we have an idea that maybe one species might be a better predictor than the other? Could you do sort of an X-factor comparison? Um, is, that, is that in any way possible? But, or would you have to have a Noah's Ark of animals um, in the right place at the right time? Well, we know in, in dogs that some breeds are better for certain things than others. So we expect that same thing in, in wild animals. But there's very little information on that yet. I mean, that's part of what we're doing right now, this Icarus project to receive data through a space receiver from anywhere on the planet and see which animals could be the ones that tell us most or that are the most sensitive ones. So that's something that we still have to do. And there's, in general, a lot more research we need to do to really understand what's happening there. And I suppose your hope, I, I would imagine, Martin, is that one day you could harness this pre-sensing knowledge of animals to help people um, in advance of what could be life-threatening natural disasters. Is there any way you can imagine being able to use this sense today? Yes. I mean, we, we are using it now uh, at a system at Mount Etna with goats to predict, potentially predict uh, volcanic eruption, <laughs> it seems to work. We actually have also patented that idea so that you know we could give it back to the people on the ground. That's really the idea. Electronic devices are becoming so cheap. This, this information flow is so powerful that you could give the power of prediction to the people locally. They could use their own favorite dogs, their favorite goats, their favorite cows to do that. And I think that's the, the power of this approach. It can be used anywhere on the globe and give you additional information, put the, the power of prediction back to the people on site. Well, I mean, obviously there are, there are man-made disasters going on at the moment, which, which also need attention, but it's a really interesting idea and fascinating research. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, that was Martin Vikelski from the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behaviour. Martin, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae, and this is a New Year's Day special where we're looking back at some of our favourite stories from the past year. Carl Zimmer is a fantastic author and science writer, and he came on the programme earlier last year to talk about what it means to be alive. Now, for centuries, stories about the origins of life have gripped us, while attempts to understand it have confounded us. For every metric we use to measure and qualify life, inevitably there's some microbe or animal that doesn't quite fit. So how do we answer this question? And what does it mean to be a living thing anyway? Well, Carl Zimmer, an award-winning New York Times columnist, sought to discuss that in his latest book. It's called Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. He joins me now. Welcome to the programme, Carl. Tell me about this, this question, because you've been writing about animals and insects and viruses and all these sorts of living things for a very, very long time. How are you only coming to this question now, if you don't mind me asking? 
Well, it's one of those questions that's kind of in the back of your head uh, when you're writing about life. But uh, every now and then it kind of pushes itself to the fore. And, you know, every now and then when I would be writing about, you know, some bacterium or, or a dinosaur or so on, you know, I might kind of, you know, broach the topic, ask a scientist, well, what you're studying life. I mean, what's your definition of it? And then the conversation would get a little uncomfortable. A lot of the times, like the scientists will be like, well, I, I study dinosaurs. I, I don't want to get into that philosophy. Or if people did have definitions, they would just be different from the last scientist I spoke to. Someone would say, well, life is metabolism. And someone else would say, well, life is evolution. And so I, I just after a while, I just got so fascinated with the fact that there seemed to be very little consensus. And then as I did some research, I realized, you know, they really – really never has been and uh, we're we're not really getting any closer now I mean there literally are you know in the past few decades there have been probably over 300 definition published definitions of life and they're not the same and uh, so that really got me just fascinated with why is it that life is is so hard to to capture to to draw edges around let's talk about um some of the things that don't fit neatly into the box. So uh, when I think of a living thing, I think of the three Fs. So um, feeding, flushing, and flirting. And and to me, uh, almost all, if not all, living things eat, produce waste, and re reproduce. That, that's But that's not the case for everything. Is that right? Well, I mean, let's take a, a rabbit, one rabbit, um, just on its own. Let's say you have a rabbit at home and it's, it leads a lonely life. Um, there are no other rabbits it can reproduce with. You wouldn't say that your rabbit is not alive, right? But, but it can reproduce. Well, uh, you know, it, it, what does it mean that it can't? Okay, like, fine. Like, let's, 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 let's spay your rabbit. <laughs> You know, so that it can't. <laughs> my point, my point being that if you, right. you know, if you say, if you start, if you talk about the things that life does, and then something doesn't do it, and then you say, well, maybe it could do it, and then you know, we, then you see how quickly we, things uh, can can fall apart. And you know, uh, another example, uh, a, a, in a way, a more interesting example is um, that there are a lot of animals that um, go into what scientists sometimes call the third state of being between life and death. It's called cryptobiosis. And my favorite example is an animal called a water bear. And uh, tardigrades, they're these little little eight-legged animals that crawl around in the moss and such. You know, they're all over the place. I was wondering how long into this interview we'd get to tardigrades. It's much earlier than I thought, but I knew they would pop up. You know, it's <laughs> never too soon to talk about tardigrades, I think, because people, not everybody appreciates just how amazing they are. And if they get dehydrated or stressed or, and so on, like, it, it, they, they will start losing water. Um, and, you know, if, if you were to lose, you know, a third or half of your water, you'd be dead, you know, and, we, and if we poured a, a pitcher of water on top of you, you would not come back to life, you'd be gone. But that's not true for the tardigrade. What happens with the tardigrade is it, it actually converts um, itself into a kind of a glass, a kind of a glassy state, it basically locks itself into place. There's no metabolism going on inside of it. None. So it's, unable to do one of the most fundamental things that, that we usually think of as being a hallmark of life. And if you pour water on the tardigrade after, say, 50 years or 100 years, it will start walking around again. 
So indeed, um, there are for for every um, list of things that you put together as a, as a as a absolute definition of life, there are going to be examples of things that don't follow the rules. Um, or or what's even more interesting is there'll be cases where they exemplify some of those hallmarks and totally fall flat on others, um, like viruses, for example. Yeah, you've written about viruses many times in your life. Where do viruses fit into this idea of living? Because they are um, they are very minimalist sort of creatures, aren't they? Uh, they are indeed. They are indeed. I mean, we have... I mean, first of all, they're incredibly tiny, um, uh, you know, a thousandth of the size of, of, of one of your cells. Um, they typically have very few genes. You know, we have uh, tens of thousands of, of genes. Um, this SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID has less than 30 genes. So, uh, yeah, so they're, one of the hallmarks uh, that you hear over and over again in terms of evolution, uh, in terms of life, is evolution. And... The variants that are dragging out this pandemic are are a classic example of evolution in action. If anything can evolve, it's viruses. However, um, we were just talking about metabolism. Viruses don't eat; they don't flush. You know, they don't feed. They don't flush. They 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 just don't do those things. Um, and so, it's kind of remarkable that you can have something that can do one of the things that seems unique to life incredibly well and just doesn't do the other things at all. So what do you say about a virus? You say, well, it's half alive. Like our language doesn't really work that well because we tend to think of life in a binary. It's either it's alive or it's not alive. Yeah, but I, I think... It, it, I think alive is is it, it makes no sense as a term because of these reasons. Like you can't really say a virus is alive, I don't think, uh, just because it, it it evolves. Well, uh, I mean, it's what's interesting to me is that um, you know one day uh, I actually got two emails from virologists in the same day um, because I had been writing about viruses in life and they had read something I'd written. And in the morning, a virologist told me that, of course, viruses are not alive um, because they don't feed and so on. And any expert would be able to tell me that. And then in the afternoon, another uh, eminent virologist told me, of course, they're alive because we can only understand <laughs> them in the way that we understand living things because they, they are things that evolve through the fundamental ways that humans evolve. So, um, and that's in one day. So that gives you a sense of how unresolved and how unsettled um, not just viruses, but life in general is. And in a way, what makes life so interesting. You write about DNA in the book and the discovery of, of DNA by um, Watson Crick and, and, and Franklin, um, whose work contributed to that. Um, when um, we talk about DNA, is DNA a precursor? for a living thing? Do all living things have DNA? Well, um, certainly pretty much everything that we here on Earth call alive has DNA as, a, as, as its genetic molecule. Now, there are some exceptions on the edge. So we just talked about viruses. There are, you know, viruses, they're kind of alive maybe, but Certainly a, a virus like SARS-CoV-2 actually has RNA instead of DNA as its genetic molecule. So, you know, there's already that already raises the possibility that maybe, 
you know, life doesn't need DNA, strictly speaking. And in fact, there are some theories that um, life on Earth began as cells of RNA, RNA molecules inside protocells. That's the, maybe that's how life started here. But there are certainly um, some biologists who argue that it's presumptuous for us to think that this particular combination uh, of nitrogen and carbon and other elements uh, arrayed in this particular shape that we call DNA, that that is the only way that uh, you could get something that we would consider alive. And there mm. are actually chemists who are trying to build alternate um, you know, genetic molecules. Um, so, you know, we... Uh, this is a kind of a big deal for NASA because, you know, if NASA spend, spends, you know, tens of billions of dollars to go to another planet, to a moon around another planet looking for life, you know, if we just only look for DNA, what happens if there are aliens floating around who use a totally different molecule and we entirely miss them because we just weren't looking for things other than DNA? So this is a, a, a really profound question. So it's hard to define what life is, but is it less hard to define what can't be life? For example, you, you talked about um, living things that may use different processes to be inverted commas living. I remember that um, a really embarrassing NASA story um, where there was uh, an announcement made about a potential, um, was it a microbe that used arsenic? Um, in its building blocks of life, so to speak. And, and because it used that in that way, as opposed to, I think, carbon or silicon, I can't remember what, what part it, it was rumored to have switched out. It turned out not to have done it um, in the end. But is it easier to say, if it does this, it's not living? Well, you know, in, in that case, as you mentioned, yeah, there was there were some bacteria that were found um, in uh, California in, in an extreme sort of arsenic rich environment. And um, there was a very flashy announcement that uh, some scientists claimed that it was using arsenic uh, in in its DNA. And this would have been just you would have had to rewrite the textbooks because this is just a very, very strange violation of life on earth as we know it and that turned out probably not to be the case that it's just just a bacteria that are able to survive in uh water that's just totally laced with arsenic certainly you know chemists will say that there are certain combinations of elements that really you know just don't seem like they would be um promising for life put it that way in other right. words you wouldn't be able to you couldn't build very stable molecules with them you know that the the amazing thing about our dna is that it is able to be incredibly complex to 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 in, in effect store a lot of information and do so throughout our lives and be able to be be accurately copied to the next generation um so yeah so they're it's not like just any old uh, combination of chemicals can do that. But we don't, we, we can't say like, this is the list of the things that, that are the only things that can be uh, the basis of life. You also talk about death in the book. And I find this really fascinating that our definition of death um, in, on Earth, even when we talk even just about human beings is subjective on the culture in which you um, you were in. And in some countries, you may be pronounced dead by a doctor, where in other countries, you might still be alive. I'm wondering, 
what you what you make of that, and 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 where do you see the line between dead and alive? Uh, so the history of, of death and and how we define it is just as interesting as, as that history of, of life. And this was a particularly a challenge um, for physicians because you know they would they would have some you know patients where they were not really sure if they were dead or not. And so how would you figure that out? And so, you know, in the 1600s or the 1700s, there are all these, there were pamphlets where, you know, doctors would give their, you know, tried and true methods for really pinning down if someone was actually dead, if you weren't sure. So for example, a tobacco enema was considered a really good way to, you know, just nail this down because people <laughs> tended to react if, if they could. Um, <laughs> and, you know, along with this, there was the the issue of, well, what is it? What are we talking about when someone is dead? Um, so certainly in the 1600s and 1700s, you know, people would talk about life as uh, often they would refer to something that sounds rather mysterious to us, sort of a vital force. Um, and uh, no one could quite define what the vital force was, but they would say, well, that's what makes life different than non-life. And so if the vital force wasn't there, then that meant that you were dead, but then it became impossible to sort of track down where that vital force was and to measure it being there or not. Um, and it, we have, as science has, has progressed, in a way, we've kind of, we've made more problems for ourselves when it comes to death. Um, so, for example, um, the, with the invention of, of the iron lung and ventilators, someone could, someone's lungs and heart and the rest of the body could continue to function even when their brain was so badly damaged that they could not make themselves continue to breathe. Actually, like, you know, doctors sort of felt like, well, this isn't really, this isn't really life. Um, you know, if, <laughs> and, and so then actually in the 1960s, this led to the concept of defining death as brain death. You know, because like the cells in someone's body, when they're on a ventilator, their cells are still carrying out metabolism. They're clearing out the waste. Um, there are cases where people, you know, are able to, you know, there was a girl who went through, even went through puberty on, on a ventilator. So, um, so then really it becomes, what you start to realize is like, we have to define death by what's, what we consider important about life. It's not so much a, uh, some precise definition that's floating out there separate from us. It partly depends on what is important to us as human beings. Yeah, and, and, and an interesting side note, we did a story on LVADs, left ventricle assistant devices, and there are a number of um, people around the world currently walking, talking, uh, going about their daily business without a pulse. So that, that doesn't define um, a... A, a living thing either because uh, some of these devices they use a sort of a spinning technology as opposed to a, a pump and and so that they, they technically don't have a pulse so i can see how it it gets really really tricky when science sort of comes along and replaces some things that we we thought really define what life is and what death is um we have only really scraped the surface uh, of this book and it, it goes into 
uh, lots of different questions around life and death. I'm not going to ruin it um, and tell you whether or not Carl has, in this book, definitively defined life, but you could probably take a guess um, from our discussion. Carl Zimmer, author of Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. This is Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. I hope you're having a good New Year's Day and getting to relax. We're going through some of our favourite stories from the past 12 months. And one of our favourite pieces was about the robber's cave experiment, one of the most unethical studies in history. And we had the brilliant Gina Perry on to tell us all about it. Welcome to the show, Gina. Maybe start off by just telling me what exactly was the robber's cave experiment? The Robbers Cave experiment was a study conducted in a national park in Oklahoma and the subjects were boys aged 10 to 11. Two groups of boys were pitted against one another during a summer camp and they were encouraged to identify as part of particular groups, the Rattlers and the Eagles, and they were put through a series of competitions. And the notion behind the experiment was that when people compete for a valued prize, and in this case for the boys, it was uh, that each boy on the winning team would win a big hunting knife and a trophy, that when they were pitted against another group, that you could actually ferment hatred and it was kind of like a proxy for racism in a way. So Musafa Sharif, who was the social psychologist behind the Robbers Cave experiment, was really aiming to show that you could manufacture hatred between groups, you could create a sense of in-groups and out-groups, and you could mirror the conditions of war and conflict in a summer camp with pre-adolescent children. And <laughs> oh my God. So so you had a group of um of ten and eleven year old boys and they were they were the Eagles and they went to summer camp. Uh, did they did they know about the other group from the beginning? Were they pitted against them uh, uh, from the very beginning? Or did they have time to sort of cement an in group thing with, with their own team before the other team was introduced? Yes, they, they had time alone together. In fact, each group that the, the uh, Robbers Cave State Park was so big and is still today so big, that both groups were there at the same time but were kept separate and had no knowledge that the other group was there. So that did allow them to form a group identity in the first few days. And so that meant that when they were introduced to the idea of a second group, and the idea of a tournament of competitions, that that competitive element was already established and the boys felt loyalty to their particular team. How were these two groups pitted against each other in that experiment? Because every weekend you have a a football team goes out to win a prize uh, and play against another team. Um, I'm just wondering how did the behaviour change versus a sports team and and what role did the experimenters have in trying to amp up that conflict between, I mean, very young boys? Well, I mean, it's interesting. You think about a sports game, what's different is that people go home after a match, but these children were in a very isolated part of Oklahoma. 
Uh, their parents and the children themselves thought they were going on a normal summer camp. They got to the camp and this um, the tournament of competitions was things like um, tug of war, baseball, um, other kinds of sporting events where the um, tent pitching, so there were timed events, there were also tests of skill, physical prowess, um, and these kinds of things were amped up by the staff because Sharif, who was responsible for the experiment, was intent on showing that you could develop uh, hostility between groups of people who had no objective reason to hate one another, but also at the end of the experiment, what he wanted to show was that you could just as efficiently break that hostility down. So it was, again, an experiment that it was a powerful metaphor for Sharif's uh, own beliefs and it fed very well into the um, era, which was the 1950s. So just give me a little bit more detail, if you don't mind, on the sort of hostilities that were, were recorded during this experiment. I mean, how do we know the two groups didn't like each other and what sort of things did they do to each other or say to each other that we that would give us the impression they, they didn't get on? Well, it's interesting. Um, well, there, it, it ranged from things like calling one another names to not wanting to sit near one another in the mess hall right through to supposedly um, ripping one another's tents apart and um, scattering um, children's possessions in the mud and um, breaking their precious things. So uh, these were the kinds of examples that Sharif gave of the animosity between the groups. And really the research staff walked a bit of a tightrope because what they wanted was to demonstrate that this hostility was real and powerful to the subjects, that is, the children. But they, the tightrope for them was that if things got too bad, of course, the kids would get homesick and just want to go back to Oklahoma City, which is where they'd come from. So there was a constant thing of almost putting their foot on the pedal and then taking it off when it came to creating situations where they could create conflict. So, for example, with the attack on one of the group's tent where their belongings were strewn about in the mud and the children whose tent was attacked felt incredibly violated. But when I looked again, when I went in and looked at the research materials and the notes that were taken by the staff, that night raid that occurred in the middle of the night with one group attacking the other group and um, frightening them and ruining their camp was actually led by and orchestrated by the staff. What? So that doesn't appear in the official publications about the experiment, but it is clear in the unpublished material. So what you have is um, a very scientific depiction of this experiment, and it is described in ways that make it sound as if all Sharif and his team did was establish these two groups at a state park set up a competition and then step back and watch events unfold. Mm. That's certainly 
that's presented in the literature. But when you look at the archival material and there are observer notes, that is, there were men hiding around the campsite, covertly observing the children and taking copious notes. When you read those notes, you get a much stronger sense of the intervention of the men in the behaviour of the children. And they're pushing this, this particular experiment to a particular conclusion. And there was a lot riding on it for Musfa Sharif. Um, he'd already run this experiment once before and it had failed in inverted commas. I'm, I'm putting air quotes around that failed. But in the earlier version of the experiment, um, which was held in upstate New York, the children actually banded together and mutinied, if you like. They turned against the experimental team and they accused of actually um, being saboteurs, if you like, of of creating the conflict between so, the children. So what about the, the participants of that study, Gina? I mean, when, when it was finished, when um, when Sharif said, sorry, um, just to let you know, you were, you, were, you were taking part in an experiment and we wanted to see how these two groups interacted with each other, um, and presumably the, the parents were in on it. How did the, the boys react when they were told that? Uh, well, uh, in fact, the boys were never told that. And my research, one of the things I wanted to do was to find some of those boys who would be now in their early 70s. And I spent quite a while trying to track some down. And when I eventually met a handful of them, I remember the first one I met I was the one who actually broke the news that it was an experiment. That was not something I expected. Um, he remembered it as a very strange experience and an unhappy summer camp. <laughs> yeah. he'd, never been, he'd never been debriefed. So I found myself in that situation with all of the men that I met and so instead of it being what originally was research about the experiment itself, I actually changed my research direction to answer the questions that those now adult boys were asking me. That is, how much did my parents know about this? Uh, what did Sharif conclude from my participation? How has it affected me? These were the sorts of questions that these people, you can imagine in your 70s being told that you were part of something that is quite a famous psychological experiment. You do begin to question how that might have shaped you and the sorts of decisions you might have made about things in your life. So it was profoundly unsettling for those boys and wow. uh, it was unsettling for me as a researcher and writer because I, I did not expect that they hadn't been debriefed. There was nothing in the materials that I'd read that suggested any such thing. And, in fact, when I looked back and looked at the letters that Sharif wrote the parents, which were used to recruit children, they were very much framed as this being a wonderful opportunity to study leadership skills in children. And it was just after the end of the Second World War. Um, wow. uh, Sharif had begun his research with groups of children. The first groups 
1949, the second in 53, and then Robbers Cave in 54. And one of the boys said to me that his father had fought in World War II and was very patriotic and that anything that he could contribute, including his son being sent to a summer camp that might improve the health of democracy in America, leadership skills, it really appealed to that sort of degree of patriotism and that moment in America. So I was able to tell the boys that their parents were certainly not aware of the potential danger of mm. the experiment that they were involved in. And when I say potential danger, um, in the experiment in 1953 where the children mutinied, Sharif's plan was that his, his idea was that if you create a problem that is too big for one group to solve on its own, then it, that group will cooperate with the second group. Mm. So idea he had for upstate New York experiment in 1953 was that he would set a bushfire and that the children would come together as a single group and a cohesive team when they were faced with the common enemy, which was, um, you know, the, the danger of a bushfire. Now, so uh, oh, man. reading about that, I was very relieved to, to hear that the children had mutinied and that experiment was cut short. So, Gina, when when we um, talk about Robbers Cave nowadays in you know, psychology classes in universities across the world, do, do people have that context or do they take the studies, supposed findings about groups and working together and collaboration as as a fact? Do, do we, does the world at large and particularly the psychologists who are studying these, these um, experiments to try and improve psychology generally, do they know what you know? Well, Yes and no. I think there is a growing awareness that um, these iconic experiments need to be revisited and scholars like myself have revisited a couple of them. But it takes a long time for change to occur because, as I said, we have these featured in textbooks. There was an article in The New Yorker just this week that used the robber's cave as an analogy for the um, Trump's America and the divisiveness between sectors in American society. And this is where these experiments are very powerful metaphors because yeah. they do help us try and understand things that are very difficult to fathom. I think the other thing that's powerful about something like Robber's Cave and some of the other iconic experiments of that period is that they're very newsworthy if you look at the original article about, or one of the earliest publications about the Robbers Cave experiment, again, the way it's described, it doesn't remind you that these were children. It refers to subjects. It yeah. refers to the activities of the camp in ways that make it sound extremely scientific and objective. But it was anything but um, by the sounds of it. Gina is the author of Behind the Shock Machine and The Lost Boys. Gina Perry, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. 
That's it from us on the podcast. Thanking Aidan McKelvey, producer Simon Keane and Steve Daunt. Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10. On News Talk.